Successes in the Mind is proud to have partnered with and be supported by the Great British Entrepreneur Awards and Community, a programme that recognises, celebrates, supports, encourages and champions entrepreneurs in Great Britain. Hello and welcome to another episode of Successes in the Mind with me, Oliver Bruce. If you're new to the show, we'll be discussing with current owner entrepreneurs their failures, mistakes, passion and continued persistence in the face of business adversity. Not all entrepreneurs have completed their vision just yet. Some are just starting out. I want to give you a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. What does it take to become successful, to grow a brand or to start a business? Join me to find out from those that are currently doing just that. Hello and welcome to Success is in the Mind, but not as you know it. As the saying goes, all good things must come to an end, and whilst that is partly true, for the next four weeks or so, we will be back on November the 4th. In this week's episode, we'll look back over the last eight weeks of sheer magnificence, reminiscing in the nuggets of inspirational information imparted on us by the up-and-coming great and good of the business world. From influencer marketing to alcoholic sweets and copied shoes to hand gel, it's been a fun first series. And whilst you can listen back to all the full episodes wherever you get your podcasts from, here's just some of the best bits from this series. Gin, alcohol, early 20s. It seems like what dreams are made of. How was it? Well, that's what we thought when we started. I'd say we were blissfully naive to how difficult it was actually going to be when we started. Um... We'd always kind of fancied running a business ourselves, and we grew up with our parents running a microbrewery. None of us kind of went the traditional route through universities and things like that. Um, We all left school, got jobs, uh, kind of went in various different directions. I moved into the branding world, working on um, film shoots, uh, designs, things like that. Um, And after a few years of that, my youngest sister was leaving school, and we thought, well, now's the time to have a crack at doing something ourselves. The only thing we'd ever done before was making and selling slow gin on a farmer's market, which, when we look back now, is an extremely low-key version of what we still do, really. We did that um, one Christmas. We borrowed a little bit of our parents' farmer's market stand and sold out by lunchtime and thought, this is an easy game. We could do this for a business easily for a year. And it kind of started out as just being a little bit of a project something that we were going to do while we all decided what else we would do with our lives. But obviously, like these things do, the idea kind of got a hold of us and turned from like a little project um, into a business. And before we knew it, we were applying for a full distilling license and um, sort of working out where our premises would be. And we actually got granted the first full distilling license in Gloucestershire or Oxfordshire for around 150 years, um, which at the time, again, naively, we didn't realise what a big deal it was. But kind of as we've gone on, uh, we found out that doing everything from start to finish like we do is actually quite a big deal. So it went from that little idea of making slow gin from a farmer's market to quite quickly becoming fully functional gin distillery where we now actually create brands for other people and put things to market and have diversified in all sorts of directions recently. Most of us being over 18 thought we'd be fine to appear on our own website, appear in our marketing. Obviously being a brand called Sibling, the four of us um, were a key part of the marketing to start with. One of our nameless competitors complained to the Advertising Standards Authority that because we were under 25, um, you're not allowed to use models under the age of 25 or that appear under the age of 25 in any marketing for alcohol. So it meant we were no longer allowed an About Us page on our website, um, any kind of reference to us in any marketing or media. So for quite a few years until I turned 25, we were almost silent on the founders and kind of background of the company, which was quite annoying because obviously (laughs) that was one of the key parts of our branding. But 
it did make us focus on um, quality of products instead um, and just be a bit more clever about how we did our marketing, not just take the easy route, which was, you know, selling the whole kind of family business thing. Um, we weren't even actually allowed to reference our names in the marketing for quite a while because we'd put a piece online, a blog um, that had said about our experience in the industry. Uh, and I'd referenced in it that I'd been working making real ale since I was 12, which obviously the, um, <laughs> the, the ASA weren't too keen on. Um, they, they, they then checked every blog we put online and um, every piece of social media marketing for about a year to make sure that there was no reference or pictures of us on there. Which again, it, it was just a challenge that we had to kind of work our way around. You go, you know, back back in the day when you were at university, you went to Exeter University, you did a master's degree in renewable energy and engineering. Obviously, you then came up with the concept of Charged Up at University. You went through with the funding. You went through to get some seed capital. You then graduated with a master's. How? How did you do all of that? So, in fact, I, I had actually graduated by the time I started the business. So it was the idea uh, that the concept was, was at university, but then it was kind of the last three years since I graduated that I've been building the business. But um, it, it has just been a case of just bashing down walls you know we we get up against a wall how do you how do you uh, produce an app i've never built an app before so you start googling how do you how do you make an app so you just you start ticking off these things how do you make uh, hardware you you find someone out in china who can work for you you then go and find a factory you assess a load of different factories you just learn as you go hugo talk to me about how you actually brokered comms with china and and sort of set up uh, I suppose, business with them? Did you have to go out there, meet people, greet people? What was the thought process there and how did it work? Yeah, it was a, a very interesting journey um, from you know the initial days of trying to find someone on the ground. That, that itself in itself was actually a, a very difficult activity. Uh, we managed to find an American chap that had moved out to China about 10 years ago. Uh, and, and, and he actually ended up consulting for us to help us find that first factory. Um, but very quickly after that, once we realized that we uh, thought we had the right factory, it was very important for us to get out there. So, you know, we, we spent our, our kind of last 1500 quid on flights and accommodation to get out to China and uh, and set off, landed in Shenzhen. Um, it's, it really is a different world. It's a fascinating place. And I, I have a lot of uh, a lot of time for the the way that people work out there and the the attitude to entrepreneurship and the the kind of anything is possible attitude that they've got. Um, and we, we ultimately ended up going out and, and, and visiting the factory, taking tours around um, and negotiating with them. Um, as as a you know 21 year old at the time, it was uh, it was quite a surreal experience with a with a factory uh, full of executives. I think there was about ten people on their side of the table, and then myself and the interpreter on, on on our side. And we were trying to to pitch them that we were going to take over Europe for them. Somehow they bought it. <laughs> if I'm setting out, okay, never run a business in my life, and I've got this idea that I want to bring to market, I successfully raise funding, I raise investments. Do I, what do I spend on? Do I go and spend it on marketing, website, branding, social posts? Because you guys at Goat, you don't spend money on your own brand. You don't spend money on marketing, which I find fascinating because you're in three different countries. How do you actually go about A, successfully marketing yourselves and B, if I were to start a business with a pot of money, what would you advise me to do with that money? I don't think that, you know, we, we spend zero on our brand. You know, it does, it's not, 
it's not cheap to spend uh you know your time recording videos over the last year every single day um you know creating that daily vlog is certainly a, a high expense to us an expense that's very well worth it and it's it's really cultured our brand into something that we're very proud of but what i would say is that we didn't spend any money on our brand or any money on our marketing over the first three and a half years um and if you try and find out anything about us before 2019, it's very, very difficult um, because we just didn't shout about it. We're very much okay. We're gonna, we're gonna, um, we're gonna run before we 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 talk. Uh, we don't need to be talking about ourselves before we we can do it. And we don't just want to walk before we talk. We want to run. We want to be the best. So when we do talk, the people actually listen. And that was kind of the model. So we, we spent three and a half years trying to we you know walk, then jog, then run. And then we got to a position where we were comfortable that if anybody talked about us or if we talked about ourselves, we had our ability to, to back it up. And, um, and that's when we started the vlog. And then that, everything spiraled from there, really. I think people think that because certain brands tweet about certain things all the time, or they're very active on social, means that they're actually really good at harnessing social. It doesn't actually make a difference. You know, if you look at the the general spend of TV versus digital, it is laughable. It is at least 70-30. And that is me being very, very kind towards digital. Normally, it's way higher. TV spends 80 to 85% of total ad spend. That is nuts in comparison to where the attention is. There is there is a YouTuber on uh, in, um, in the US called Mr. Beast, and every single YouTube video gets between 20 and 30 million views every single one there is a very very small amount of tv shows in the world that will get you the same ratings as that video that video will cost you four hundred thousand dollars to sponsor it forever forever and it will be integrated into the content there is no other there's no other media format that you can get that many eyeballs on that content in an integrated way with the presenter reading it out all these different things that is impossible on any other media formats to get it for that price and that is the power it's so underpriced right now even though it seems expensive four hundred thousand dollars oh that's huge for a youtuber yeah but he's getting 30 million views 30 million people care about what he's saying they're not just watching it because it's on at eight o'clock prime time on the main channel they've clicked on the video there's 30 million people that clicked on the video. You know, that, that, that's the power. That's the power. I'd love to say that where I've ended up has been an absolutely strategic path of organisation, but it's not. If I'm honest, I think anybody with any entrepreneurial shit running through their blood just ends up where they see the opportunities taking them. I think I was probably, if I'm honest, a very round peg in a square hole at Royal Mail. I absolutely loved my time there, but um, anyone who's ever worked there or worked for a large corporate organisation will utterly know that most of them have the turning circle of the QE too. So decisions are not made quickly. They have to go through legislation, regulation, and never more than when you are. When I first joined Royal Mail, it was a, um, a compliant organisation. We were a monopoly, so our compliance regulation was unprecedented. With that, we had our major share stakeholder, who was the government, which changed every four years, if not more frequently. And on top of that, we had a myriad of unions in there. So when it came to getting things 
over the line. The one thing the Royal Mail taught me was patience, absolute research and, and insight. You know, you, you can't make a decision in one division and not think about the effects it has across an entire organisation because it, it just doesn't work. And I think that was one of the most interesting things for me is and the, the probably the biggest learning curve when starting up, because I think entrepreneurship is amazing if you just you can just react you can have an idea and you think this is great but if you don't build business on facts and on actual business research it's set to utterly utterly fail I was very lucky to be awarded an OBE by the Queen I got it for helping you know young people and women in business and one of the things I feel passionate about and, and, and stand by and it's not to everybody's taste but I feel very strongly it's the right person for the right job I don't care what sex what colour what creed what belief I don't care any of that as long as you want to metaphorically put your running shoes on and go running and do a job to the best of your ability now I know lots of women would love to see quotas and they'd love to see different things done differently but for me I've never felt held back as a woman I've never and you know 20 years at Royal Mail where 80 odd percent when I joined were men because given the nature of delivering post at midnight it doesn't suit a it doesn't suit a you know a woman and it doesn't and it never will and I think we have to recognize some of that but the last five years at Royal Mail I set up subsidiaries for them part of their innovation campaign was to almost look for another revenue stream you know, if letters were doing so well, parcels were growing with all of the online shopping, but actually they wanted a third revenue stream. So I set up several businesses from them from concept through to the end, making, if I'm if I may be so arrogant, say a lot of money for them. So when I got my standard annual first class stamps for my Christmas bonus, I thought, do you know what? I what else is there, Oliver? What what else is there? No. Well oh, there is that, <laughs> but I would not have thought they'd give you stamps as a Christmas bonus. Uh, yeah, I think I think it was twenty. 25 first class stamps in a Christmas letter signed by the CEO and the chairman at the time. So um, so I remember opening it up and thinking, do you know what? I'm making quite a lot of money for them on a regular basis. And it was my fifth setup of business for them. And I thought I might go and do this on my own. I suppose during a period of your life, you were both running a startup, uh, be it Guns on Pegs, as well as also overseeing uh, James Purdy, which is over 200 years old. I mean, I suppose going back to you, Chris, at what point did you go, I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to exit the world uh, of finance and go and sort of put it all onto onto black, so to speak? <laughs> so we were sitting outside a cafe called Franco's and I was 24 how old was I, 25, 24? And we were looking at this thing that we were running effectively from our Blackberries at the time, just answering customer queries and stuff like that. And we basically said, look, we've got a chance now to try and turn this into a business. And a guy sitting next to us smoking a cigar overheard this conversation and basically turned around and said, how old are you to me? And I was like 24. And he was like, so what happens if you do this and it doesn't work? And he's like, you'll be like 26, right? And I was like, yeah, fine. He's like, well, you're only 26. I mean, that's not even a risk. Like, you could just start again. And it, it was actually really important. That was... Yeah, and that, I mean, that was... Uh, he was dressed in a black tie. I've never forgotten him and uh, a wonderful uh, guy. But he also then turned around and said, well, why worry about it, Chris, anyway? Because your old man can write you a decent part of the CV for the two years that you screwed this business up in. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Get on with it. <laughs> so at what point during that process in terms of when you say you've obviously generated a lot of revenue, again, guns on pegs might not necessarily have been turning a profit from day one as you pumped a lot of cash into it. At what point did you start to 
make money with this business? Ten years after it started. Wow, so you were bankrolling it for ten years. That's why I'm on the street now with my cap in hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so um, genuinely, yes, it, it got stressy. We took on investment in 2013 from a hedge fund manager who loved his shooting. He bought into what Dad and I believed in, and without him, we wouldn't be still going. In the summer of 2017, in July, I had to draw down the final aspect of the loan, which was just enough to allow me to pay the salaries in the summer of 2017. And at that point, I said to myself, I will never put myself in that position again. It was disgusting. I hated every second of it. And I I made some wholesale changes, took 150 grand off the bottom line overnight, which involved having to lay people off, moving office, doing all sorts of things I didn't want to do. And we made some significant changes. And I said to everyone, called everyone around basically and said, right, this is the way it's going to be going forward. We streamlined what we were doing and we pushed on from there. And then we've had significant growth ever since. Right at the beginning, I sold a sort of family heirloom to get us off the ground with a bit of cash. Oh God, what was it? It was a bracelet that I'd inherited and didn't, you know, I was never going to wear it. It was ugly and not my style and very 80s ostentatious and you know I thought someone's gonna buy this for a couple grand we ended up actually selling it for 20 grand wow had you known would you have worn it (laughs) I'm not very materialistic person so things like that I'm like great I got 20 grand and started a whole business and I'm here where I am now as a result and I the whole family were you know much more pleased with that than it's sitting in a safe somewhere. And when you, I suppose, when you're when you're trying to pitch this to people and you're going, okay, so we're alcoholic sweets, do you often get laughed out the room or do they go, this is really interesting, tell me more? I think at the beginning, everyone thought we were crazy. And at the beginning, everyone was like, but the children, they'll get their hands on it and all be drunk. And we were like, no. Um, I mean, we've, t- we've done very specific measures in our product and packaging. So each gummy is actually individually wrapped in a sachet that's opaque. And then those are in an opaque box. And so there isn't that worry that if it sits on the retail shelves, a child will see it and want it because they won't even know what it is. And we've worked really closely with the regulatory boards to kind of get that sign off um, and go overboard. And with retailers, I think, you know, their biggest concern is how they regulate the purchasing point. So, you know, in our bigger retailers like John Lewis, they would just infiltrate the barcode. So when the you know, salesperson checks them out, a kind of flag comes up to check their ID to make sure they're 18. I looked on your website and what was it in 2017 when Trump was running his, uh, I suppose, presidential campaign, which he's doing again now, you released lollipops that said Trump sucks. Now I think that's brilliant. Were they successful? They were very successful. We didn't necessarily need the profit from it. We were willing to donate and we wanted to donate everything to Planned Parenthood. The funny thing was when we made the lollipop, so Tom, who's my husband, he's actually a sculptor by trade, but that's like saying I'm a musician by trade, so neither of us actually do it, but he did make these Trump molds that looked identical to Trump's head, and we made about 200 lollipops and over the weekend, and we invite, we got one of my friends to do a funny little video, and the whole point was if we sold 200 lollipops at £5 each, it was enough money to kind of get us through that month, mm-hmm. and then once we got the rest of our cash in that had been kind of overdue, we could give the profits to Planned Parenthood. And we made that clear with the initiative that all profits would be going. And it just so happened on that Monday, Trump pulled his funding from Planned Parenthood. So there was loads of news and actually it got picked up by George Takai, who's a big Star Trek celebrity out here. He's got 20 million followers on Facebook. Oh, wow. And because he posted our video, it went viral. We had about four and a half million shares of the video Crikey. in 24 hours. 
That's incredible. I mean, that's expensive as a campaign if you have to pay for it. But and, and that was an accident. So that was an accident. We ended up selling about twenty thousand pounds worth of lollipops. We couldn't make them. We ended up having to outsource the manufacturing. No way. But there was still margin there to be able to donate to uh, to, to the organisation of your choice. Yeah, we donated about seven thousand pounds. I was thinking last night when I was when I was researching into you. I thought, well, what what can we do this this campaign? And I thought, okay, so there's those sweets that you used to be able to have as whistles, and you used to be able to blow them, for instance, and make. Mm. I thought we could have maybe Trump blows in the, in the 2020 something like that. Would that work? That's funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's let's do that one. We can give all the donations, all the all the profit to uh, to the same charity. That's really funny. <laughs> you have that one for free, Melanie. You've obviously now diversified from, I suppose, shoes from loafers. You had this this legal case. Talk to me about when the Italian firm sued you for essentially just copying their shoe. Well, I think it's um, one step further back than that. Is we bought those shoes off the shelf from a Spanish factory. So, <laughs> so you just rebranded them? We just put our logos in them. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we, obviously, um, everyone knows Gucci shoes. And the idea that we could sell them... At, wouldn't have occurred to us, I don't think, unless we'd seen them on the um, in the showroom. We're like, this is fantastic. And naturally, people loved the bargain Gucci shoes, which came back to bite us <laughs> in a big way. I could imagine. How much did it cost you? Do you have to pay the full fine? They wanted 100 grand from us. Uh, this is year two. Um, 100 grand from us. They wanted a full-page apology in one of the national newspapers, which would have been like another 50k, I imagine. We had to sign everything saying that we'll never go anywhere near so like the idea of doing anything with a buckle on terrifies us now in case it resembles Gucci the, the lawyer bit of this is my favorite we we received this email a 92 page document on Friday and I was like Mark we've got a problem everything that's going through your head about Gucci you know it's a massive company coming after us going to kill our dream year two um so eventually we got hold of a local lawyer in Swaffham um not called Mark we call him Mark and Mark offered to pay them something like 40 quid a pair and the cost price was around 40 quid anyway so right. obviously totally unacceptable to us um, um bankrupt us yeah i can imagine very very fortunate my one of my dad's friends was down for the weekend i was talking to him and he happens to be a qc lawyer and he's like i will um i will send one email but i there's no way you can afford my time but i'll send them one email so you've got it coming from like someone who looks like they can put up a fight and hopefully not expose how empty our bank account was. <laughs> and he sent an email, and one of the, his opening point guy, um, to the guy over at Michigan was, dear bloody blah, I'd like to educate you on a point of law. We're like, this is our guy. And um, eventually, a bit of back and forth thing, but we agreed to dispose of all the shoes. So we had to send, I think we had 400 pairs of shoes, which was probably, I know, 40% of our stock holding at the time. It was really painful. So we decided like we cut them with scissors and dodgy places and we mixed pairs. That's what made me laugh when I saw that. The fact that you mixed the pairs, they weren't the same sizes in any other box. They must have did you hear from them again? <laughs> I, I followed I followed it up a few times. Um because I still email them and if anyone could ever listen to this, I'd love to know how you see so many other companies um selling snaffle bit loafers. Um you see them everywhere. And is there a rule for some or or rule Who's the rule applied to? I've emailed them them a few times. So my biggest mistake, well, not my biggest, but one of the biggest was I just trusted people when they said, like, like investors, if they were going to invest. I remember my first 
potential investor, we built up a really like emotional connection because they had just been diagnosed with MS and you know I was helping them through that process. They had promised me investment like five on like five different occasions. And by the time it came to signing the term sheet, they pulled out. Really? And I was like, oh crap. I had literally just like <laughs> I've literally just relied on this this money and that never came through. So that was like my biggest learning curve. And I just think everybody should be told that at the beginning of their fundraise. You can never rely on money until it's in your bank. Do, do you do you think more and more people are becoming more and more aware of what CBD is? Because, you know, when you were diagnosed in, in, in 2015, it wasn't as, I suppose, abundant as it is now. We obviously have Melanie Goldsmith on a few weeks ago who has diversified into the world of CBD. Is it becoming more accepted? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in 2015, I didn't even know what CBD was, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I was using medical cannabis to manage some of my symptoms. And it wasn't until like maybe 15 months later where I was at a trade show where I was trying to develop my knowledge and my curiosity into the benefits of medical cannabis where I discovered CBD. And this was in 2016. And I was like, oh, this is great. It will basically has the potential to give me all the benefits of medical cannabis without the psychotropic effects. So I didn't have to experience that high. I mean, I was working in the city at the time. So obviously, this is not very, um, this is slightly frowned upon. So this was like perfect for me, basically. I definitely think it is becoming a lot more widely acceptable. And also like the knowledge is growing and people really, really know what it is. We're seeing the numbers of uses double in the UK every year, if not probably triple this year. In every industry that I've ever worked in, empowering women and working with women have always been a passion of mine. And through the cannabis industry, what we saw in America, two years pre-legalization, there was 36% women in C-suite level positions and above. In the year of 2017, with legalization happening, that dropped to maybe 23%. Two years post-legalisation, that dropped down to 12%. So as we then were looking at the UK as a nascent market, what I wanted to make sure that we didn't have that dip there. We have a multi-billion dollar industry that has no prehistoric settings to be male dominated and a fantastic opportunity for female entrepreneurs to have autonomy, financial autonomy, uh, creative autonomy, and to build these really amazing kind of like entrepreneurial journeys for themselves. And it was just both a passion project of mine and Jessica's to make sure that we were a part of this and we facilitated this and these connections and networking for women. That, yeah, in- incredible. I mean, words can't sum up how inspiring I think this, this specific podcast has been genuinely. Thank you as always for listening and all your positive comments and feedback to date. Join me on November the 4th, where we'll be discussing more about the failures, mistakes, passion and persistence with another inspiring owner entrepreneur who is currently in business. Thanks once again for listening to this series. Take care.